You are listening to the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. Liberty Moms are the original secretaries of defense. We are the real defenders of the home front, and we are there when it comes to defending our families and our communities. I'm your host today, Delaine England. We're so happy to have you with us, and I'm very thrilled to have a dear friend, Kimberly L's amazing Liberty Mom, amazing, that she is with us today. She is the author of a book called The Invincible Family. She is a total freedom fighter. She has such great grace and diplomacy, and yet she stands up and stands for the most important values of America, truly the family, and very specifically motherhood and fatherhood. And that is something that I've always loved about Kimberly because I think as mothers and as pro mothers and pro-women, it's very important. I don't know how to be pro-women without being pro-father because what makes mothers is fathers and what makes fathers is mothers. And we are a companionship in a unit. We are very dependent on each other. We're here to create families. And it's such an honor to be a mother. I love being a mother above all things. It is my most favorite thing. I love being a mother. And I love Kimberly's book because it really, um, really states how valuable and important motherhood is and, you know, really how blessed we are. And she just does such a great job articulating it. And I, I have felt so much lately, especially, I always have, but I have especially lately felt that we as mothers and we as women and wives, sometimes we don't. And, and I think this is generally true with people. We we talk about the issues and our problems more than we talk about our blessings. And we don't always focus on how blessed we are and what we love. We kind of focus on what the problems and the issues. And, and that is something that I really have admired about Kimberly. And what's really great about her book is um, we really do need to stand up and talk about how great motherhood is. We need to tell our young people how great it is to be a parent, how wonderful it is. So, Kimberly, welcome so much. We're so grateful to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Kimberly, um, you wrote this book, but, I mean, I knew you before you wrote this book, and you were involved. What is it that made you decide, I need to write this book? What happened in your psyche? Well, I had been interested in family topics for some time, but when it really <laughs> kind of came to a head is when I got involved with a group at the United Nations. And I saw then that with my own eyes, you know, that there was a real kind of organized attack happening against the family, particularly mothers and motherhood. And, um, you know, I guess maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was. And um, so I've spent about the last 10 years learning about those issues, kind of global issues and the global forces that are at work, um, guiding kind of the anti-mother sentiment 
um, which anti-mother is, is of course, anti-family because <laughs> you don't have families without mothers or fathers. So, so um, and, and that, the family, of course, is the core of civilization. So if there's an t- attack on motherhood, I see that as an attack on civilization itself. And that's not something that any of us can take lightly. And I realized I couldn't. And and then I realized, well, how how will anyone know about these things? I didn't I didn't know until I went to the United Nations, but not everyone is going to go there. Not everyone is going to be exposed to these things. And so um, I uh, decided I need to write needed to write a book so that I could share it, that message more broadly. Fantastic. You know, you're so right. I don't think most people really realize what the United Nations is really about. They hear mm-hmm. some things. That, and, you know, it sounds bringing all the, the nations together. Let's unite as nations. It can sound very community, very warm and fuzzy. But having been to the United Nations twice myself, it doesn't take very long to see what their agenda really is. And it is to eliminate motherhood and, frankly, mm-hmm. eliminate women, and, and which means you eliminate children. And they're very clear about their agenda is to depopulate the earth, to get rid of people living on the earth, to greatly completely eliminate it, but to greatly reduce it. And so, yeah, and that's a really powerful way to do it. So tell me, when when you were writing your book, and, and what is the thought process? Like, how did you start? And, and what, is your, what is your premise? Tell us your premise of your book. It is very amazing. Sure. Well, the kind of the key moment when I knew that I had to write the book and and the direction that I would take it with with was when I had the thought I was just kind of pondering upon, wouldn't it be great if um, (laughs) we could hear from God himself, um, which side of the camp he's on? Is he in favor of collectivism or is he in favor of privatization? Kind of that idea. And, you know, there, there are different things in scripture and history that you could possibly yes. point to. But I just was thinking, man, wouldn't it be great if <laughs> we could hear a testimony from himself kind of clearing up this this issue? And then this like thunderous thought came into my mind that and this was it. Children belong to their mothers. And then I, I thought, wait a minute, what does that mean? So the more I thought about that, that idea, I thought, wait a minute. So that means that private belonging happens in families automatically through the anatomy of, of mothers in cooperation with fathers. And then I realized, wait a minute. So if God really is the creator of the earth, which I believe he is, and if he is really the author of our anatomy, which I believe he is, then he has spoken on this issue because of the very way that families are formed, meaning a baby comes to an individual woman and it is hers. It belongs to her. That's something that almost all people believe, although that's being challenged now, which is part of the problem. But but um, imagine, imagine, Delaine, if it wasn't that way, like we take motherhood so for granted, like, oh, babies, women get pregnant and then they have babies. And that's just the way life is. Well, what if life wasn't that way? What if what if babies just popped up from some machine or for some, you know, little opening in the earth? They just popped out. Well, how would life be different if there weren't families? And if you take that far enough down the road, you see that that would, that would well, first of all, no one would survive to begin with, but even supposing no. they did, supposing they did, then people would, would wait for babies to be produced in whatever way, take them over and use them for whatever selfish purposes they wanted to. Do you see what I'm saying? So Absolutely, it would be, I do. 
it would be automatic collectivism and a total mess and a total lack or almost total lack of what we call love. And so while it might be efficient and less painful and, and uh, inconvenient for women and for men, the pain and inconvenience of motherhood and childbearing and parenting is purposeful because it privatizes the entire world. The fact that a baby is born to a specific mother and it belongs to her privatizes the whole world. And so I thought, I've never thought of it that way. I need to share that because women are so often told, we're so often told that we don't have power. We're in a less powerful position. We need to do more manly type work, what's traditionally been man's work or whatever. But if when we do that, what are we leaving? We're leaving yes. our unique and special and irreplaceable stewardship to humanity, to the children of the world, which become the adults of the world. So, and it starts with our own babies though, which makes us happy. So it's just such a beautiful plan, the family is, because not only is it is it the thing that works the best, it's the thing that brings the most joy. And not that it doesn't come without heartache, um, but if there weren't it families- can't, It can't it, really it, have, value and can't really have joy in the family if we don't have sorrow and sadness. I mean, we know right. that we need, there must need to be opposition. We know that we wouldn't really have joy in the family without it being hard. That's what gives it kind of the value. So yes, right. it is hard Yeah, and it is wonderful. So that's the, that's the basic premise is that, that the role, the actual anatomy of, anatomy of women is what privatizes the entire world. And if it wasn't that way, the world, I, I don't think would have survived to this point at all because, you know, we talk about the United Nations and one of their main areas of focus is the sustainable development goals, making our production sustainable and uh, supporting the world. Well, guess what? The world is not sustainable without mothers. It isn't. Mothers are what sustains the world, of course, in cooperation with the work of fathers, like you started out saying, when it's not really one without the other, it can't be. And so, and for all the talk of the sustainable development goals and all these initiatives, if we eliminate motherhood to a large degree in the name of sustaining the world, we will fail. That will be an epic fail because the, the world is not sustainable without mothers. That is exactly right. Of course it is. And, and we know that the entire foundation of society is the family and how important the family is. And I think it, it is hard to, to be aware and to be awake right now and not notice that the family and motherhood is under attack by the world and clearly by the United Nations. But I love what you said about collectivism because we keep hearing this mantra from the world and I hear it on a regular basis saying the children are ours as a community. Children are, they're our children, so we need to take care of them. We all need to take care of them. We all need to invest in them. And and that really goes counter to what you're saying is that children are their parents and that there isn't a collectivism when it comes to our children and our families that they are very individual, which is so interesting because that's right aligned with the creator. He didn't create us with collective rights. He created us with individual rights. He created us very mm -hmm. unique, very individual. We have our individual DNA that is like no other person in the entire world, in all creation. Our DNA is completely unique and different from every other person, which is really quite amazing in itself. <laughs> and um, 
yeah, the family is the basis and the core. And so we know that, or I mean, it has been said, I believe the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And maybe that is threatening to some who don't want the mothers that rock the cradle to rule the world. And we do have a lot of power if we will take advantage of it. So what do you think that women can do um, to really to make our world better? How do we change our culture or fix our culture as mothers? What can we do as mothers? Well, first of all, what you were saying is that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I believe that is absolutely true. I think that, and I, I've thought about this deeply and I don't say it lightly, but I think motherhood is the most powerful position in the world. I it agree. is. And that because that's where the souls of men are are forged. That's where the character of new human beings is is the scaffolding is laid down. Now, people, of course, later have the ability to make their own choices, but but the power to put in place the basic tenets of a soul, that is powerful. And that's what mothers get to do. Fathers to, to a different degree as well, but mothers just have, they have a unique position and a unique power. And so, first of all, I think we need to start with recognizing that and um, as women embracing that and and talking in those terms. You know, sometimes, you know, like you're at a, a gathering and people are talking about what they do. And, you know, a, a lot of us say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a mom. We never, ever say I'm just a mom. You say, I'm a mom. I'm a mother. Now, a lot of us are many other things. You and I are things other than mothers. We, you know, I'm an author and a writer and a runner and a baker and so many other things. And, and you run a radio show and so many women do things other than mothering. My message is certainly not that we can't do things other than mothering, but that mothering is the core place of, of power and one that needs to be respected. And we need to start talking about ourselves, first of all, in terms of being valuable and powerful and then spreading that message. I think one of the most powerful things we can do for the future of the world today is to talk to our daughters about how much we love mothering and love motherhood and prepare them for that. Yes, they should still go get all the education that they can. Yes, they can still be engaged in public life. But if we raise up a generation of young women who do not want to be mothers and see that as a powerless and expendable position, I believe the world is in deep trouble. And, and we're seeing the fallout of that already. You know, that's that's I think that's why we're seeing so much of this problem in the culture and this divisiveness and, you know, all these problems with children's mental health. There's many factors, but I think a key factor is mothering. And if we cease to value the nurturing of the upcoming generation, one child at a time, which is mostly done by mothers, then we are cutting off the branch we're sitting on. Ooh, well said. Very well said. We're cutting off the branch we're sitting on. You know, Kimberly, I couldn't agree with you more because really that is, we have so much power and such a role as a mother is to really help shape and develop the character of our children, good or bad. I mean, we really have a lot of power that way. And you can mm -hmm. look back and, and I don't, almost every great person that I've ever known who's really created, who's really accomplished great things will go back and attribute 
it to their mother and their father, but very much to their mother who they spent time with as a child in those formative years where they spent more time with. And, and of course, their fathers, which also had great impact, but we cannot diminish that. And I think that that is is one of the one of the things we forget as women and mothers. And I, I don't want to call out anybody. I'm not trying to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad, but but I do see a lot of amazing women who who do call themselves just a mom or they will or they will um, focus. It's so easy. The world is so enticing and it's so easy for us to forget the most important thing and to give that stewardship up to society to the schools and to others and say oh my kids can learn the um about the gospel of jesus christ or about character or or their religious foundation they can do that at church they can learn at Mm -hmm. school and so it's gotten to where sometimes i think what we do is as moms is get our kids out the door um to send them to somewhere else and then maybe we spend a little bit of time with them doing homework which um, oftentimes is somewhat contentious because, you know, it's it's st- stressful and frustrating and give them something to eat and send them to bed. And it's just so, so important that we as mothers really m- mentor and enjoy and spend really valuable, wonderful time with our children mm-hmm. in teaching them. Right. And we need to we need to really think about what it is we want, because Um, women have been pushed toward a a corporate life for so long. Mm -hmm. Again, not that they can't pursue that, but women in general have been pushed into the workforce for so long that we've now created an economy and a society in which it's difficult for them not to. So I think that, uh, but is that, is that the kind of society we want to live in? And what do we, what sacrifices or changes do we need to make for our family? so that our children can learn more from us than from the culture around us. And I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but I'm saying it's got to be done, you know, and we've got to look hard at the ways we're spending our time and our money and think about and get creative about how can we invest more time with our children? Because what they really need, they don't need the social emotional learning program at school they don't need a trip to Disneyland. I talked to a working mom once whose kids were clearly suffering and she told me that she worked so that she could take her kids to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's not a good enough reason. Like they don't need all these other things. They need you. They need us. That's what they need the most. And you know, if we go look at our lives intentionally and think about our children individually, God will guide us in what we can do and we can't we can't just throw up our hands and say, "Well, that's just how it is today." Well, how can we make it different? How can I make it different for my family and work with a cooperate with other people to make it work for their family? Because if we're if we're sacrificing sacrificing our children, that's the wrong sacrifice to make. We need to choose different sacrifices to make. You know, when I was a young mom and started having a family, I actually had my own business. And I really loved my business. And I'd started it from myself from scratch. So it was really important to me. And, and I, I really loved it. And then when I, I had my second child, I realized what just exactly what you're saying. I was sacrificing my children for, cause I'm like, 
the world said, you can have it all. You can be a mom, you can be a career woman, you can have a business and, you know, you can do everything. And that, that, the, the thing is you can't do it all well. You can do it all, but you can't do it all well. And, and I realized that I was sacrificing my children for my business and my career and, and money. And I decided, you know, I wanted to raise my children myself. No one was ever going to mm -hmm. love my kids as much as I do. And it was a difficult decision. And I am so grateful that I did it. And what I didn't realize at the time was how short of a time it is that we have with our children to raise mm -hmm. them. Because yep. when we're moms, we think it's our whole life, which is true. My dad would always say, once you have a kid, you always have a kid. <laughs> you always mm -hmm. have your children forever, which is so awesome, which I love. Thank goodness. But you think that you're going to be raising them. It just seems like such a long time. And you can't really grasp this perspective of how yeah. fast it goes and how really short it is and how I would give anything and everything to have my kids back in my home, back raising them. And the magical, amazing times we had together is so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And there's just no substituting that. There isn't. And you, you, they're little for such a short time. Mm -hmm. And I had a similar experience. Like I was, you know, my kids were a bit older. I had an opportunity to go to the United Nations and start doing all these things. I got involved with a group called Family Watch International, which is really wonderful. They do great things globally for the family. And I was on track to kind of go into a larger role. And then guess what happened? I got pregnant. Yes, yes. Over 40, you know? <laughs> and so then I had, so then I was having a baby at 42. And so I myself have had to face this, you know, and, and make some tough choices and pull back from that and invest in my son, who's now six years old. And I'm so glad I did. And bonus material here. I don't think I would have ever written my book, The Invincible Family, if I hadn't had my son, because he kept me close to home. I wrote while he was napping, actually, and he grounded me in such a way that enabled me to write the book, where, which was a surprise to me because I thought, okay, well, a lot of things I had planned, I'm not going to be able to do. I'm going to invest in my son. But it turned out to be a surprise blessing that it ways I couldn't have anticipated. And so I think we can trust moving forward that our lives, you know, God will be in our lives in ways that will help us to prioritize our children. And, you know, thank you so much, Kimberly. That's so beautiful. And that is so much fun. It is such a fun surprise to have a baby older in life, and and it is wonderful because we're we're wiser, and we kind of have more perspective, and and I think you've just articulated it so well. We're so blessed to be able to be mothers and to have our children, and how truly gratifying it is, and how much we learn from them as much as we have the opportunity to teach them and help them, and and it's a joint venture where we're learning from each other and we're serving each other. And we're really creating so much value and, and literally creating the world and changing the world in positive ways. And so, yeah, my invitation is to just to um, invite mothers to really love every home. It goes super fast, as you know. So what we have just 30 seconds left. What parting thoughts would you like to leave with us, Kimberly? Uh, family life is, life is not easy, but it's absolutely worth it. And without that, what do we have? what do we have our families are the core of our joy they're they're the reason we work they're they bring us support when we're old and young and that's worth fighting for it's worth fighting for politically and personally in every way we need to and we need to send the message to our daughters that motherhood matters kimberly thank you so much true liberty mom appreciate it we will be back in just a minute stay with us 
Welcome back. Thank you so much for staying with us. This is the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. Liberty Moms are the original secretaries of defense. We are the real defenders of the home front. And we are there when it comes to defending our families. And we also are there when it comes to defending our communities. And I'm your host today, Delaine England, and I'm really excited about a holiday that's coming up. And you think it's Christmas, and I'm very excited about Christmas, that holiday coming up. I love Christmas. I love Christmas time. I would always tell my children when they're growing up, when all, the whole month of December, I'm like, this is Christmas. It's not just a day. It's a whole season. So enjoy this whole season because, you know, Christmas Day comes and then the next day it's over and you have to wait a whole year for it. So this is a great time to really celebrate Christmas and to celebrate the birth and the life and the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is really magical and wonderful to think of ways that we can really remember him and, and incorporate him into our lives and think about him and the great liberty that he has given us because Jesus Christ is the author of liberty. And briefly, I will just express, do you think there is a, or question, ask you, do you think there's a difference between freedom and liberty? I would say absolutely. Freedom, what is that? That is our agency, our freedom to choose for ourselves what we want to Liberty is when we use that freedom with a moral compass and a moral, with a moral under, under um, foundation, then we use our freedom in a way that creates true liberty. We all use the freedom to choose what is good, what the highest good, the best. We use freedom to liberate us from the bondage of this world, to liberate us from sin through the Savior, who is the author. Of liberty, and so liberty has a moral foundation and component to it. We're using that freedom in a moral way. So I think that Christmas time is a really great time to think about ways that we can use our freedom in a moral way to bring us liberty to ourselves individually and to serve others in doing the same. And and also when we're when we're thinking of New Year's resolutions and ways that we can improve ourselves and improve the world around us. I think that this is a great time to be thinking about that. But there is another holiday that is um, right now. And that holiday, if you don't know what it is, it's December 15th. And you might say, well, what in the world happened on December 15th? And sad that everyone doesn't know, but that is Bill of Rights Day. So Bill of Rights Day, we're right now celebrating the 231st anniversary of the Bill of Rights, the signing of the Bill of Rights. So we're going to talk a little bit about how amazing and how blessed we are to have the Bill of Rights. Can you imagine living now in this very day without having the Bill of Rights? And it started not in 1776 or not in 1787 when the Constitution was signed or not in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was actually put into place, that it really kind of started, I mean, even farther back than 1641. But in 1641 in America, in Massachusetts, they passed a body of liberties. So they did this kind of a resolution or a, a, a document that was called the Body of Liberties. And they put in there some of the God-given rights that they wanted to have protected. And they made the statement, these are God-given rights 
And these are rights that every person is entitled to. And some of those are things like we're very familiar with, like having a speedy trial and to be able to speak freely, to be able to speak your conscience, to speak your heart and your mind, to petition the government for redress or to, to be able to go before your government and, and state your cause, to have no excessive bails, that you can't have bails so excessive that no one could possibly you know, fulfill that, which had happened by the king. Um, a public trial and to not be tried twice, that you couldn't be tried twice for the same crime. So these were things that the founders had dealt with living under a monarchy and under the king and that were very important to them. And so they made the statement that these were God-given rights. And then, as you know, they time went on. They had the the king started to usurp power and authority over the founding fathers in America and where they had really governed themselves very well for 180 years. And then the king needing more money and wanting to usurp power and authority over the founders um, instituted the Stamp Act. And this, this actually impeded on quite a number of the founders' rights that they felt were, were God-given natural rights. And um, it was kind of an effort to squelch the freedom of the people. And, and the Stamp Act, it, it was specifically not just to gain money, but also to kind of um, regulate or control freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of even movement or, or property ownership, because it had a great... It, it had a great repercussion on all of those freedoms. And as I said, the founders felt that there were inalienable rights, and so they didn't want to have any form of government squelch or try to impede on those inalienable rights. And, and several of the colonies, uh, Virginia, New Hampshire, and several colonies had a, a declaration of rights. And again, it was more... This was in the 1770s. This was more of a statement of a resolution. There was no binding authority to it, but they did kind of speak to this principle of having God-given inalienable rights that should be protected. So I want to ask you, what is the role of the government? What is it that the founders created the government to do? And there really was clearly only one stated role, and that was to protect the rights of the individual. The entire reason for creating the Constitution was to protect the rights of the people. And as Thomas Jefferson let them bind with chains the federal government. It wasn't to give the government power, but to bind the power of the government with chains so that they couldn't usurp uh, power and authority over people, but it would be used to protect people's rights. So now when they came to the Constitution, there were 70 delegates that were sent to the Constitutional Convention. Only 55 of those delegates actually showed up. And then when it came time after four months of debating and discussing, 39 signed on to the Constitution itself. Some didn't agree and decided not to. Some didn't think they had the authority, or as delegates, they didn't have the authority from their states. Um, some were sick and couldn't attend. 
select early. They're just like, oh, you know what? I can't stay any longer. I mean, it was great sacrifice. Imagine just leaving your home and going back anywhere and and for four months, four to five months, because it was a lot of travel. They didn't get on a plane. Um, they they took a horse or a carriage, and so it took a lot of time to travel. And so some were gone for four or five months, and some just, I can't be gone away from my business or my home any longer. And so some left early and and didn't really have the opportunity to sign. But there were three men who made a very conscious decision not to sign the Constitution, even though they actually agreed with the Constitution and wanted the Constitution in place, but they said they would not sign without there being a Bill of Rights. And these men were George Mason, Elbridge Jerry, and Edmund Randolph. And they actually very much were concerned about centralized power, but they really understood and knew we needed to have a constitution to govern us. We had just fought a very bloody and heart-wrenching war and been very successful. But of course, if we didn't have something that a, a foundation, if we didn't have a a constitution or a government to give us some guidelines and to bind down with chains the the power of the government, that England, of course, could come in and take us over, or any other country, frankly, for that matter. And so we needed something. So these men who had deliberated for such a great amount of time knew how important it was, and so they. They knew that we needed to do something and that we needed to get the Constitution in place. But but these three men were willing to sacrifice their signatures being on this most amazing and historical document that literally changed the world because they wanted to take a stand and said, we, we can't do it yet. We can't do it until we have a Bill of Rights. Now, now the government had tried to stop our freedom of the press and our freedom of speech numerous ways and numerous times. And they, they really did want to impede on that and were looking for ways that they could, could squelch this because they wanted to maintain, even, even after the war, they were looking for ways to maintain and, and to, to continue to control us. But it was very important that we get we get the Constitution and, and Madison, who was you know a huge player in the Constitution, he when this idea of the Bill of Rights, which had been ongoing, he said, you know, it's not really necessary. And many of the founders said, you know, we we don't need this Bill of Rights because all of these rights that we're talking about that are that are proposed, these God given inalienable rights, they're all in the Constitution already. They're in those seven articles. They're there. They're not listed. They're not overt, they're, they're, but they are there. And, the, and so he felt like the protections for our personal liberties were already there. Alexander Hamilton also is like, the, the, they're there. We don't need them. We can't list every single one. So there was definitely a fear. If we try to list them all and we miss one, or missed a few, then it will be assumed that that is not an inalienable right. So that's a very fair consideration and a very fair argument. But George Mason 
and Elbridge Gerry, but they were very concerned about centralized power with good reason. If you consider what they had just come off of, but they had just been living under some centralized power, the king, and they had just fought a war to get out of that, they did not want to risk going back into that. And so they wanted to make very, very clear this, that, that we, we had rights and that they were absolutely protected and that that this centralized power, this federal government or any other could not come in and take those rights away and usurp them. So Madison, I think this is such an important lesson. This is a very important lesson about the integrity and the character and the wisdom of these men who God said were the greatest souls that he could find on the face of the earth at the time. And of course he decides when we're on the earth. So that speaks very well of them. So Jefferson also felt very strongly. So he felt strongly that we needed to have a bill of rights that we needed to be clear. And when Alexander Hamilton and Madison spoke, you know, we, we can't make sure there's no way to be sure that we can list every inalienable right. We don't want to risk leaving anything off. He said, a half a loaf of bread is better than no loaf at all. So even if we don't remember every single right, if we can remember most of them, if we get a good portion, if we get more than half, that's better than not having any of them protected. And so you can kind of see, um, but recognizing the names, that the Federalists felt like we have this covered, it's in the Constitution. The anti-Federalists who were very concerned about centralized power were saying, we need to reiterate, we need to make clear, we need to define and literally make it absolutely so clear that no one could ever misunderstand or think that we don't have these rights. And so what Madison did was he, he realized we're not going to get the Constitution passed if we don't, if we're not willing to get this Bill of Rights in. So he decided, you know what, I'm going to help write it. So he, did, he, want, he saw the problem and he knew the solution. And so he said, I'll be part of the solution. Even though I don't think we need it, I think it's a great idea. Let's do it. And so he wanted to help articulate it. And so there were over 200 amendments or Bill of Rights ideas proposed. So they had 200 ideas of different inalienable rights. And so it did take some wordsmithing and some time to really kind of bring it down, to articulate it and bring it down. They got it down to literally 17 amendments or 17 bills, Bill of Rights, 17 articulated thoughts on how we could make it clear and articulate our, our protections. And, and then, as you know, we got down and we were able to bring it down to 10 Bill of Rights that were were voted on, I believe 11 passed, and then um, eventually 10 were passed right off, and then they passed one, the 11th, a little later, and then, of course, the 12th. So 11 and 12th were actually signed by the Founding Fathers and passed with the, when the time the Founding Fathers were still alive, but the Bill of Rights ended up being these 10 Bill of Rights, and they really are so amazing, and I just want you to think about what is the very first Bill of Right. What is Amendment 1 about? 
It is about protecting our right to religion, our right to speak, our right, our freedom of press, our freedom to assemble, and our freedom to redress. So those five principles are in um, our very first amendment, our very first Bill of Rights. And I think that it's there first because freedom of religion is the foundation of our entire country. Think about the, the sacrifices made by those who came across and founded America, the pilgrims, and they did it really, they did it for the freedom of religion. Now, of course, when they went to Holland, before they came to America, they left England for freedom of religion. They went to Holland. Now, they had freedom of religion in Holland, but they found freedom of culture. The culture there was just so anti-religion and anti-morality and anti-liberty, true liberty. They didn't appreciate it, and they wanted a place where they could really worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience in the way they wanted to, but also with a positive culture. And that's a very important part of our country and our society. And so they they really, it's just so amazing. They, they just made such an incredible sacrifice and left their land. And so they they were able to experience all of these unalienable God-given rights in alienable, some people like to pronounce it that way, which is just great, unalienable rights. And so they were able to experience those because they were really left very much to their own devices for almost 180 years. The king is like, as long as you're paying your taxes and you're behaving yourself, we're all good. And so they experienced true liberty because they were founded on a moral foundation, because they found that freedom, that they were free to choose, but they were really, really tried very hard to choose liberty, to choose wisely and to choose with a moral foundation. They really were um, able to be liberated. And because Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, was the foundation of our country. So when they they were able to, not only were they able to pass the Constitution and get the Constitution in place, it was very important to them as well is to have, they only it only required three-fourths of their signatures, three-fourths of the colonies or the states to sign on to the Constitution. But they really wanted to have a unanimous vote. That was very, very important to them. They wanted it to be unanimous. And so they wanted to work in a way that all the states would come together. And so that is one reason that the Bill of Rights, uh, Madison chose to work on this and to write the Bill of Rights. And again, I want to acknowledge these three amazing founders, George Mason, Elbridge Jerry, and Edmund Randolph. So I wanna ask you, do you believe that the founders, those 39 founding fathers who signed the Constitution, do you believe that they were inspired of God, that they were fulfilling their mission that God had given them in signing the Constitution? Did they do that in righteousness? I believe that they did. So do you think that George Mason and Elbridge Jerry and Edmund Randolph, do you think that they were actually 
rogue? Do you think that they were rebellious? Do you think that they were, you know, not nonconformists or that they were being, you know, brats for lack of a better word? Were they being just unreasonable and unruly and saying, no, I won't sign without the Bill of Rights? Now, this is just my personal opinion, so I don't really share my personal opinion that often. Usually I like to just share the facts. But the fact is they didn't sign, even though they did agree with most of the Constitution and wanted the Constitution, they didn't sign for the very fact that they needed, they felt we needed the Bill of Rights. And I believe that they were literally led by God and that they were inspired not to. And keeping with when the Lord says we must needs, there must needs be opposition in all things, I used to feel that that was there must needs be opposition between good and evil, right and wrong. But when God says there must needs be opposition in all things, even in righteous things, a, a little opposition, not outward rebellion, but opposition can really help us to refine and be stronger and better. Just like when you when you refine a diamond, um, it's not you you use you know the the refining process of mining things is is very painful and very harsh and very hard but it um and it is opposition but it creates something more beautiful and more amazing and more refined and i think that is true with the constitution of the bill of rights it where would we be without the amazing amendments and the bill of rights to make very clear and make sure all of our due process in uh, five, six, and seven, our freedom of privacy, our right to privacy, which in so many ways is being usurped right now, and how important it is that we have that, and we can go back to our Constitution and say we have this right, and it needs to be honored and protected. Our Second Amendment that literally keeps all of our other amendments of available it, it makes it protects all of them without our ability to uh, protect ourselves to protect our families to protect ourselves and our families against anyone who tries to usurp our own liberties and including our own government and so it we are just I just feel like we're so blessed so I just want to express to everyone this is a really a wonderful time to celebrate the life and the, the the life, not just the birth, but the life of our Savior Jesus Christ, and to acknowledge that His hand in our creation of our country and His hand in our creation of our Constitution and and in our lives, and we have much to be grateful for. And so, I'd also like to challenge everyone to to take a stand and do do something in this coming year and at this season to not only serve others. And to, to lead others and help them to liberate themselves from the bondage of this world. But to take a stand and to get involved and to do, do something to make sure that our God-given rights and our liberties are protected. And to remind those who are elected and that have taken a sacred oath to uphold our Constitution, sometimes they need a loving and kind reminder of what those rights are and what the role of the government is is to protect those rights and kindly and respectfully make sure that they know those things and we have a lot of work ahead of us and a lot of things in this coming year 
and that we have great opportunities and we do have freedom of assembly. We do have a, a right to get together and be with one another and we have a right to petition our government and we have a right to call upon them to make sure that all of our rights that are listed in those amazing Bill of Rights are honored, protected and taken care of. And so we just want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and that we will remember that it is our responsibility where much is given, much is expected, and we have a great responsibility to stand up and do something about it. And so Merry Christmas and remember that you are the guardians of your liberty. Thank you. Thank you.